The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Hi, you're listening to This Must Be The Place and this is Liz Taylor of Monash University. In today's episode, it's a bit different. Normally I talk to people, but this episode I'm just going to actually read out an essay that I wrote recently about my experience of living in a building with combustible cladding, also from reading Kafka, and, well, that's that's the basic premise. I've called it Trial by Cladding. Here it goes. I recently finished reading Franz Kafka's 1925 novel, The Trial. It's an unsettling, absurd story about a young middle-class man suddenly caught up in a farce of bureaucracy. The protagonist, Joseph K, spends a year fighting charges which are never named, but of which he is presumed guilty. He is increasingly consumed by obscure court proceedings, which, officious lawyers assure him, are very serious, but that he need not dare try to understand. Disbelief ebbs into resignation. His weekends disappear with worry, and inconvenient appointments seem to start to slip up at his job at the bank. The fact he doesn't know what he is accused of, or whether or not he did something wrong, becomes irrelevant even to himself. My innocence doesn't make the matter any simpler, Kay reflects. I have to fight against countless subtleties in which the court is likely to lose itself, and in the end, out of nothing at all, an enormous fabric of guilt will be conjured up. I started reading the trial after my apartment building's last owners' corporation meeting because I wanted to directly understand the adjective Kafkaesque and its applicability to our situation with combustible cladding. Like most people, I knew Kafka was shorthand for absurd situations. Famously, metamorphosis begins with the character waking up as a giant insect. From its popular usage, I understood Kafkaesque to mean a comically complicated process, which the situation with cladding certainly already was. But I think the trial... It also once been mentioned to me in passing by a Croatian colleague who described her suspicion of cheerful government descriptions of policies. To her, having grown up in communist Yugoslavia, these inevitably signalled something cruelly incompetent going on to somebody in the background, like in the trial, she had said. In the confusing boredom of an owner's corporation meeting concerned with the strange details of an urgent need for us to remove chunks of our building, I was finally drawn to reading the trial. At the least... I thought it might provide a lighter perspective on our situation. Like tens of thousands of others in the state of Victoria, Australia, I own and live in an apartment in a building containing combustible cladding, similar materials to those that fueled the 2017 fire at London's Grenfell Towers, in which 72 people died. In the wake of the Grenfell fire and of a 2014 fire at the Lacrosse building in Melbourne's Docklands, Victoria's cladding task force determined that the presence of combustible cladding, including aluminium composite panels, on high-rise buildings is unsafe and non-compliant. Perhaps surprisingly, the onus for rectifying non-compliant cladding in Victoria has been placed with apartment owners, not with the builders, developers and other professionals who specified and used the materials and sold the apartments, not with the insurance agencies fond of advertising how awful it would be if a random problem were to happen to your house, and won't you be glad you had insurance if it did nor were the local and state government regulators who signed off on the buildings or the private building surveyors who replaced council building inspectors from the 1990s. Instead, seemingly the least culpable group, owners who bought supposedly compliant buildings, 
are the ones compelled to fix an urgent problem created by government and industry and are facing bills typically $40,000 to $60,000 per apartment to do so. Yes, it's perfectly legal. Yes, it is perfectly insane. While apartment owners are held responsible for the problem, they had no way of avoiding it and are, in most cases, poorly equipped to navigate the financial and wider process of rectifying it. But as Joseph Kay reflects, innocence doesn't make the matter any simpler. If there's some small irony to this, it is that the combustible cladding crisis is already undermining property transactions and, by association, the revenues of the industries and governments who perpetuated it. My husband and I have owned and lived in our apartment in Coburg in the north of Melbourne since 2013. A year ago, in June 2018, we were informed in a letter from Moreland Council as part of their cladding audit that our building was suspected of having combustible cladding. We were to show cause as to why our building should not be condemned. The letter arrived as unexpectedly and ominously as the warrant in the trial. And like Joseph Kay, we were incredulous at first. Kay, at the outset, thinks the charges must be a joke but still finds himself scurrying to produce papers and arguments in his defence. We also scurried to begin with. Our building is compliant. We have insurance. This attitude quickly came, as in Kafka's and our experience, to seem naive. In the year since, strange and complex things have happened to us. More letters, lawyers, meetings, rumours that our case has or has not progressed. The trial of apartment owners like Kafka's is uncertain, information poor and seemingly endless. All Joseph K. experiences are farcical petitions and proceedings, wrinkled with vague suggestions his case is going well or poorly, or that he should feel more fortunate for his legal representatives and imprudent for his scepticism of the courts. The magistrates and lawyers, he is often reminded, are busy and kind-hearted. He will fluff his case by making such an outcry about feeling innocent. There are, K. is told, three possibilities, that is, definite acquittal, ostensible acquittal, and indefinite postponement. Definite acquittal is unheard of. The difference between the others is, quote, that ostensible acquittal demands intense concentration at long intervals, while postponement taxes your strength but means a steady strain. At various intervals around combustible cladding, when I have written to ask for clarification, authorities have responded by reminding me of the seriousness of the situation and restating the processes in place, none of which seem to have any particular endpoint. Like us, Kafka's K resigns himself to a steady strain or intense concentration at long intervals. But the distraction of defending himself is wearying. He later arrives at a third option, but I'll get to that. Meanwhile, the enormous fabric of guilt of Australia's apartment owners being asked to pay for combustible cladding is the product of systematic failures, facilitated by legislative changes. The privatising of building surveyors, changes to building insurance to protect insurers and builders over residents, poor oversight in the construction industry and of its materials. A boom in high-density housing, coupled with reduced consumer protection just for that kind of housing, and the limited power of the Victorian Building Authority. Builders commonly, as in our own case, go into administration to avoid facing defect claims in the courts. An exemption on warranty insurance on large buildings over three storeys, introduced in 2002 following the HIH collapse, means apartment owners in the same class of buildings that are subject of cladding orders are also those without any warranty to cover building defects. We hear conflicting information about whether performance-based solutions like firebreaks, sprinklers and other, other responses that contain the spread of fire would be acceptable. Parts of the building compliance processes appear, to bewildered, own, bewildered owners at least, to contradict each other on basic points. Rather than tackle the regulatory issues, poor policy decisions, poor oversight, poor industry practices that have perpetuated the cladding crisis, the government is occupied with trying to compel thousands of owners into paying an average of $40,000 to $60,000 per apartment and in some cases $100,000 to rectify dangerous cladding. 
The owners include retired teachers, nurses, community housing agencies and many others who simply are not in a position to pay. This does have the advantage of being so outlandish that most people not experiencing it don't believe it. In the trial, Joseph K. often has to explain his case to relatives and acquaintances who assume he has misunderstood some basic point about his own situation. Your indifference drives me mad, his uncle chides him. To which a newly world-weary K. retorts, it's no use getting excited. To court officials, meanwhile, he is too excited and does not understand the inherent validity of their processes. When K. complains that my position is becoming more and more difficult. He's reminded that he is misinterpreting the facts of the case. With combustible cladding, it's almost by design that apartment owners and residents find ourselves culpable for what, to most outsiders, would seem to be clearly the actions, or so the expertise, of others. We switch between the disbelief or indifference of people outside who assume something this stupid wouldn't be real, and the scolding of officials to take more responsibility for ourselves. While our, quote, safety is the priority, Authorities remind us it is also up to owners themselves to maintain their properties safely. There are three buildings in Victoria that have had cladding-related fires, and 931 confirmed to have some level of identified cladding risk. At least 649 buildings are subjects of high-risk cladding rectification orders. This could be as high as 1,200 buildings, according to a statement at a building surveyors conference in early 2019, and there are likely many more to come. But as yet, not a single private residential building has been confirmed as fixed. Nor, apparently, has a single cladding loan, a scheme through which owners may pay back their cladding debts, quote, through council rates, has been brokered, partly because several councils have ruled out participating. Most impacted apartment buildings have no realistic estimates of costs for rectifying non-compliant cladding, or they have wildly varying estimates. Some buildings are in the urgent later stages, with authorities threatening owners with fines for inaction. But even then, regulators provide little guidance on alternative materials or of what would constitute compliance. The government policy of keeping building names secret, in the interest of arson or something, and of holding individual rather than public meetings means owners have largely been isolated without shared resources to draw on. Nonetheless, over the last couple of months, at public meetings, round tables and discussion groups, I've heard apartment owners from across Melbourne sharing tales of stressful processes, typically held, as in Kafka's trial, in isolated corridors. Studies, meanwhile, are showing the acute financial, social and health costs of being trapped in a combustible building. Our apartment building seems to be less badly impacted by cladding than are many others, yet each moment we're thankful to this and try to accept the first world silliness of the situation. Some new indignity for one form or another arrives. Most recently, our insurance fees more than doubled on account of the continued presence of combustible cladding. That means an additional $1,000 a year for our apartment and other typical apartments. For many buildings, insurance is increasingly difficult to come by at all, but it is a legal requirement to have it. Building insurance costs for owners in other buildings with suspect cladding are rising by two, three or even five-fold. In some buildings, the strain of fees is pushing owners into financial stress, increasing arrears and furthering difficulties owners have in maintaining buildings and paying for cladding lawyers and for technical reports. In another recent instalment of Indignity, last week my husband and I received a second terse notice about our balcony hanging pot plant collection, including an anonymous photo of the offending plants which, we are reminded, poses a serious occupational health and safety and fire risk to both property and persons alike. I argued in response that the real risk is not the pot plants, but the combustible cladding that remains on our building. 
Yet it seems both easier and more politically acceptable to restrict the lives and pot plants of apartment residents than it does to fix a serious problem created by poor regulation and industry practices. At an early meeting in our apartment about the cladding rectification order, I recall I found myself asking, is this system stupid by accident or by design? It sounded like a barbed joke, but it actually was, and still is, an unanswered question. What about the other option, giving up or denial? Maybe the whole thing is a wind-up and residents should call it bluff. I've had this thought a few times, but again, Kafka's The Trial is sadly instructive. The last chapter of the trial takes a darker turn. A year into his case, Joseph K. fires his lawyer and gives up on the process. As a result, he is summarily executed. In fact, he is expected to execute himself, but in, quote, this last failure of his, he could not relieve the officials of all their tasks. His last words are, like a dog, said as he watches two flustered executioners watching him bleed to death. Quote, it was as if the shame of it must outlive him. In other words, his last hope is that the memory of his pointless trial and death will at least be embarrassing to someone. Given that casual public violence to dogs is no longer so routine, perhaps a different animal analogy might have aged better. Kay earlier also compares himself to flies stuck on flypaper, struggling till their little legs are torn off. I hope no one else dies in a fire fueled by combustible cladding, and that the trial of apartment owners in Australia remains, if it must continue, in the interest perhaps of generating work for lawyers and bureaucrats, in the genre of comedy rather than horror. In fact, no one has died in Victoria from cladding fires. It has only had three fires, which only caused extensive property damage and ongoing chaos for residents. But addressing the risk to life is, in theory, the point of the cladding rectification process and its urgency, much like the airbag thing with cars. The longer the process continues with no cladding removed, the more risk there is of another, another fire. And the longer the current process continues, the more certain it is that more owners and residents will be stuck navigating the same process. The trial of apartment owners of combustible cladding is also, it seems, beginning to have broader consequences for the industries and governments shifting responsibility for it. I think it's reasonable to ask whether hundreds or thousands of apartment buildings caught in the limbo of issues around combustible cladding and related building defects, like cracking, might be part of the recent falls in property market activity and stamp duty incomes. Property transaction numbers in Victoria have dropped over the past year, taking state government's huge budget reliance on stamp duty revenues with them. In property sales freefall blows $5.2 billion hole in Victoria's budget in May this year, the age reported stamp duty revenue bill collapse by an average of $1.3 billion a year for the next four years, described as, quote, the worst such result in Victoria's history, dwarfing the losses seen during the global financial crisis. The drop is attributed to house and apartment sales going to free fall over 2018 to 19, with average monthly property transaction numbers dropping by 15% from 16,300 in 2017-18 to 13,900 so far this year. Meanwhile, property industry representatives worry the drying up of insurance options for building certifiers because of cladding will further slow construction activity. Falling flat, Melbourne apartment building slows to a trickle, that was also June this year, reported that the number of apartments produced in Victoria has been decimated, literally, down to 2,000 this year from a high of 23,000. Construction of dwellings is considered a lead economic indicator. In Australia, building more houses is in itself considered an objective.
No mention is made of the multi-billion dollar cladding crisis and its tens of thousands of effectively unsaleable properties. To me at least, however, I see combustibly clad chickens coming home to roost. Under questioning in Parliament recently, Victorian Planning Minister Richard Wynne confirmed that 931 buildings in Victoria had been rated for some level of combustible cladding risk, with 439 rated extreme or high risk. As audits continue to roll out across local governments, that number is still climbing. Numbers have been only released with some reluctance. Authorities still won't confirm which building or how many individual properties there are. Simon Lockley and Travess Moore cited figures that Victoria had 629 residential buildings officially on the VBA's high and extreme risk rectification list. They also noted reports of as high as 1,200 buildings rated for cladding risk. The processes differ in other Australian states but there are 447 high-risk buildings identified in New South Wales so far. With 931 confirmed buildings in Victoria, and probably many more in future, impacted by some degree of combustible cladding order, if we assume, as in Traves and Simon's earlier modelling, that the buildings contain on average 75 apartments, that would mean around 69,825, or around 70,000, impacted apartments in the state of Victoria alone. The average annual turnover rate for properties in Victoria is 5.7%. If we apply this turnover rate to the likely number of cladding impacted apartments, there were perhaps 3,980 fewer property transactions in the past year on account of combustible cladding. This would account for 14% of the drop in Victoria's stamp duty figures from 2018 to 19. Many reasons contributed to a slump in housing transactions, including changes in lending and finance conditions themselves related to cladding. Still, it's striking that combustible cladding has not been mentioned in a drop-off in property transactions and construction of the past year that coincides with the rollout of cladding audits. Housing trends tend instead to be reported in abstract, passive terms, consumer attitudes and softening markets, rather than concrete problems with actually transacting properties, including those directly caused by government industry. Many people in impacted apartments love their apartments as homes and want to stay in them. They would prefer, prefer, obviously, if the apartments were not highly combustible and if they were not embroiled in a labyrinthine process to make them safe. Others want to move but are stuck. My husband and I did try to sell our apartment, mostly mostly because of a change in my work location to the other side of the city, but we have shelved those plans. Unsurprisingly, buyers are not attracted to apartments with combustible cladding. We've heard similar stories from other owners in the same position. Banks have publicly signalled that they are reluctant to mortgage or refinance impacted properties, and valuers have announced that their protocols will now flag properties known to have cladding as risky. Apartments like ours known to have non-compliant cladding will be rated the highest level of risk by valuers as, quote, extremely important or urgent adverse risk for the lender, triggering further investigation and, we can assume, not a huge level of enthusiasm to buy. The presence of cladding must be disclosed during sale in Section 32, although there are some appalling cases where this hasn't been done. So in general, sales fall through during contracts due to buyer, valuer or bank concerns. The emphasis on disclosure of cladding itself implies how buyers would, if told, generally be reluctant to proceed with purchase of a property with combustible cladding on it. Alternatively, apartments with cladding might still sell, just with tens of thousands of dollars knocked off the pre-cladding price. Reducing apartment prices down in this way would be more feasible if better information were available, but reliable figures and timelines for rectification are rarely in existence. I know if I were looking to buy a house now, or home now, that finding one, preferably made of brick, with no cladding risk would be a priority. There are too many unknowns. Real estate agents tell us to wait until the cladding is resolved, 
which shows no sign of happening. Having a real estate agent advise you against trying to sell your home is not normal for the profession. Some owners haven't bothered to put their apartments on the market, knowing it is unlikely they will sell or too difficult given the issues. The situation is even more constrained for the three Melbourne buildings that have had cladding fires in them and for the hundreds of other buildings with emergency orders in place. Strata Communities Australia note that tightening letting restrictions on buildings with cladding also mean owners cannot borrow against their properties to finance rectification, thus deepening the trap. There are many more people like us, tens of thousands I think, with apartments with combustible cladding who are deterred from or constrained in their capacity to sell or borrow. This has a flow-on effect on their potential to purchase other apartments or houses. There are, as a result, fewer property transactions, which then undermines, by maybe 14%, perhaps a fifth, the stamp due revenue that Australia's state governments have come to rely on. It also undermines long-standing state policy on intensifying housing and urban development. Victoria has tens of thousands of apartment owners who unwittingly bought non-conforming properties and who are being asked to pay cladding remediation costs of tens of thousands of dollars per apartment. With no recourse to civil law or to insurance, they are cast into a Kafka-esque process where everything is urgent but nothing actually works, where everything is technically obscure but the corridor has no end. Why is it that apartment owners and residents are afforded so few consumer rights considerably less, as been pointed out, than purchases of cars, fridges, or washing machines. Apartment residents are being sent a clear message that normal rights and regulations do not extend to high-density housing in Australia. This message and reality in turn is undermining decades of state-level planning policy supporting high-density housing and urban intensification since the early 1980s. Many people chose high-density housing for affordability and sustainability reasons. They traded off space location and what seemed like good design. Survey data suggested the most common reasons for choosing apartments in Australia, Australian cities, and the most common thing residents joy about them is the ability to live near public transport and within walking distance of amenities, and to have a home that is, in a now ironic point, safer and lower maintenance. They chose a smaller mortgage with lower transport costs that they could manage. For some people, apartments were all that was affordable to them. Yet Australian governments and public debates show a willful indifference verging on contempt to people living in apartments. This attitude comes easily, drawing on a long history of discomfort with the quote, flat evil, associating higher densities with disorder and moral threat. Apartments have always been imagined as fringe dwellings in Australia, a norm against which more recent strategic planning policies since the 1980s have pushed with no small conflict. Scrutiny around intensification of Australian cities has focused, and some would say it's still not enough, on the external appearance and impacts of apartments, like feared parking overflow. Meanwhile, public confidence in Australia's high-density housing, little as it was to begin with, is in practice quickly being eroded by poor quality of basic construction and ongoing governance arrangements. Much of this is particular to Australia and to its high growth rates over past decades, within which the construction industry and overseas students have had its central role at one of the major, or some of the major industries in Australia. And keeping that growth going, even if say the buildings they build are not really insured or livable has been an objective in itself. Planning Australia is kind of it only knows how to manage growth or to fear the drop off in growth. It's a particular kind of mindset here. Apartments in Australia are routinely poorly constructed 
85% of those built since 2000 have serious defects, water ingress and structural problems amongst them. Opal Towers in Sydney is the headline version of this, but there are others. Building faults are of course very common in freestanding houses and other buildings. The situation in apartments becomes magnified by the fact that builders and other professionals have extraordinarily little accountability for defects in high density housing because of policy changes made to protect the construction insurance industries. Apartment owners shoulder a higher level of responsibility for more complex problems and simultaneously they have more intricately constrained rights than residents of freestanding houses. As apartment residents, as one small example, our local government does not offer us hard rubbish collection, although house residents are given several free pickups a year. It's a small thing, but it adds to a broader, almost unconsciously repeated narrative that the problems with apartments are what they impose on others, whether they are too tall, too many, too ugly, or too irresponsible with their hard rubbish. Part of the use of combustible cladding in the Grenfell Towers, for example, was an effort to smarten the appearance of the building to its neighbours. An easy suspicion of high-density housing mirrors and compounds similar stereotypes around rental housing, especially social housing. The documentary The Pruitt-Igo Myth examines how the rapid decline of a St. Louis housing estate, public housing estate became shorthand for an inherently flawed design and policy. This narrative of inevitable failure, however, is what allows people to collectively overlook the causative role of specific policy and funding decisions and to overlook the experiences of people who lived in the projects. Conservative estimates for the cost of rectifying combustible cladding in Victoria's apartments sit at around $1.6 billion. Apartment owners are being left to foot the bill, but the evidence so far shows that they cannot or will not do so, in part because the process has proven so flummoxing. The Docklands Lacrosse Tower building provides some hope. It looks close to being rectified and involved a court case in which builders and other professionals were held liable for apartment owners' costs. But to get to that point, the building had a fire five years ago, and they were lucky that the builder stayed solvent. In the trial, Joseph Kay is dismayed to meet a man who has been on trial for five years with no apparent result. I've carried my burden for five long years. It's no small achievement, that, he says. At near a 200 building on Spencer Street, which set fire in February this year, many apartments are still uninhabitable months later and it's rumoured that insurance cover has been withdrawn. So if you think that level of time and complexity is tenable for hundreds or likely thousands more buildings, you certainly have more faith in the systems governing our built environment than I now do. If people out there do believe there's a clear timeline and cost for colliding rectification in Australia's apartments, now might certainly be a good time to be buying apartments. Probably given those complexities, scale and risk of combustible cladding, government legislation and funding is the only feasible solution, at least until some level of accountability in the built environment and professionals can be developed. The UK government recently acted in this dis direction. But over the next five years, Victoria's Treasury predicts a shortfall of $5.2 billion from stamp duty as a result of fewer property transactions. One way of looking at this is it means Australia's governments increasingly can't afford the costs of fixing the crisis they have facilitated. The federal government also has a role in its signing off of aluminium composite cladding and other products as safe construction materials for importation. It's also impacted by changes in dwelling construction, which is considered a lead economic indicator. Viewed more positively, tackling the failures around cladding could, over the coming years, perhaps restore confidence in the house building industry in Australia and in turn reinstate some of the big ticket infrastructure items promised through stamp duty revenues. Either way, if the government can't afford to fix cladding, 
nor their hits to building activity and stamp duty. It's hard to imagine how apartment buildings, apartment owners are better placed to pay for it. The costs of rectification are sometimes a third of their property values, and Australians are more precariously indebted to the property market than ever. Kafka's Joseph K. lasted a year struggling with his case, flailing against his unnamed charges. He makes long speeches like this one, but nothing changes. It's all part of the thinly veiled absurdity of the process of authoritative people looking like they know what's going on. The court sees Kay's indignation as simply a phase people go through, noting condescendingly that, quote, almost every accused man discovered from the earliest stages a passion for suggesting reforms, which often wasted time and energy that could have been better employed in other directions. Early in the trial, when Kay still believes things ought to make sense, he criticises the court's many officials and processes, arguing that, quote, the significance of this great organisation merely consists in this, that innocent persons are accused of guilt and senseless proceedings are put in motion against them, mostly without effect. He means it to be withering, but it is not taken as such. Anthropologist David Graeber in 2016's The Utopia of Rules refers to the rise of total bureaucratization or predatory bureaucracy, referring not to a proliferation of government per se, but to a proliferation of government regulations designed to extract and redistribute wealth. Institutions like banks are, Graeber argues, intrinsically tied to the state, much as they posture otherwise. In such a context, as with property markets, deregulation is more accurately changing the regulatory structure in a way that I like. In this case, how over the years various property, construction and insurance industries have liked. David Graeber also refers to the iron law by which, quote, any government initiative intended to reduce red tape and promote market forces will have the ultimate effect of increasing the total number of regulations. Indeed, while building insurance and inspections in Victoria have been progressively deregulated, I'm confident that the corresponding level of legalistic paperwork in my own life, all of it pointing towards my obligations and debts around said building and its cladding, is larger than it would have been previously. Such processes infiltrate the details of everyday life. While mounting government and corporate paperwork and evaluation are felt most by the poor, with, quote, legions of functionaries whose primary function is to make poor people feel bad about themselves, an internalised sense of individual culpability for circular, ineffectual systems is widespread. Through this, I've come to notice how many ads for insurance there are and how little they actually say. They rely instead on relatable images of loss and inconvenience, reminders of how vulnerable you and your things are, and of how the responsible thing to do is to take out insurance to protect yourself, as if this will buffer you from arbitrary assignations of guilt. The role of insurance and combustible cladding has meanwhile proven illusory or worse. It has not helped apartment owners and has actually formed another layer of costly problem in itself. Apartment owners are deeply indebted to their housing and to paying to insure it, just as they are held individually responsible for the systems through which this property is created and regulated. Through such realisations can educated and comfortable people, property owners, first world citizens, normally the beneficiaries of unfair systems, be shocked out of their assumption that the world is fair, or that, even if things are unfair, they at least some have some kind of internal logic. But one is so unprepared, Joseph K. reflects glumly in the trial. David Graeber notes how the mounting pile of paperwork in people's lives even if actual paper is less and less involved, renders basically everyone stupid. How we are regularly reminded that our own stupidity, not a system, is at fault. 
Faced with criticism that the loan scheme through which owners would pay for cladding rectification was unworkable, Victoria's planning minister Richard Wynne remarked that, quote, we don't need to change the scheme. The scheme is sound. I don't think they fully understand it. While Joseph Kay never knows for sure, he reflects on whether it was in fact the blithe comfort of his past life that was the crime he had been charged with and in his death found guilty. Trials like this, combustible cladding and associated icebergs of building faults and deregulated deeply implicated buildings in Australia, they do give you pause for reflection on luck and fairness and on how different people either escape from or suffer the consequences of human systems, be it robo-debts or migration law or the crushing idiocy of arguing with a multinational corporate bureaucracy of an electricity company, which I have done. Combustible cladding is but one small canary in a coal mine, one glimpse into that abyss. Kafka himself, ironically, requested that the trial, which he apparently laughed out loud at while writing, be burnt at his death in 1924. Perhaps my own copy will be burnt in a combustible clatter fueled fire. But it seems likely the instructiveness of Kafka's book and of the word Kafkaesque will continue to long outlive him. To what extent this is true of the businesses and governments involved in the manufacture and displacement of guilt, or of the flammably clad apartment buildings they created and that we live in and with, remains to be seen. I was struck in reading David Graeber's Utopia of Rules by the crossovers between his description of situationists who seek to, quote, cut holes in the fabric of this reality with the, quote, fabric of guilt of Kafka's trial and the fabric of cladding itself. My expectations of the realities of government have shifted through the entry of this incongruous thing that is the wrapping of a building. Where once I had confidence, more or less, now has come disbelief, and then horror, and now a certain rash uncertainty. At first I thought it must turn out well, says Joseph K. in Kafka's trial. But now I frequently have my doubts. I don't know how it will end. Do you? You've been listening to Liz Taylor of This Must Be The Place, and I'd like to end with a Taylor Project song, Detroit, about another kind of um, fallout. There's boys in jeans With no need to wear sunglasses Staring back at me The post-industrial poster boys For a feeling that I sometimes have when I'm gazing up at power lines In a fading light That we are all Detroit 
Our heels and 